this morning we're going to be wrestling through uh, the concept of identity. And Moses does the same thing. And so we are in week two of our sermon series on the book of Exodus. And, uh, and so we're going to dive right in. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 11 today and make it all the way to chapter 3. And uh, it'll be on the screens if you'd like to follow along. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. It says this in verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, He went to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. The Bible's making it very clear that there's murder and a cover-up. He's looking this way and that. He buries the body in the sand. And the Bible does this often. It doesn't paint its heroes always in a positive light. It's honest. Uh, sometimes they make the wrong choice, sometimes they have the right heart, but then they do the wrong thing, which is, I think, the case here for Moses. Standing up against injustice, good thing. Murder cover-up, not so much. Verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Now, I think that this passage of Scripture, just these few first few verses that we read, raise a whole lot more questions than it gives us answers. I think the Bible does this beautifully. There are answers in the Bible, but the more you dive into the Bible, the more questions arise. Uh, the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions. And this may come to surprise for some of you, but it doesn't even answer all the questions that we have just in Exodus chapter 2. For example, when did Moses discover he was a Hebrew? Right? We, had, we studied this last week. Uh, he was a baby Hebrew, and his mother put, put him in the Nile River. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter, princess, and then his mother fed him for three years, but then gave him to Pharaoh's daughter as a princess to become a prince of Egypt. When did he know? Uh, The Bible fast forwards to when Moses is now 40 years old. What happened to those 37 years from when he was three to 40? Did Moses grow up hating his mother because she was not an Israelite? Okay, I'll live in this house for a while, but eventually I'm going to go with my people because I know who I am. Or is it more likely that he came to rely on the princess of Egypt as his mother that he grew fond of her, even to love her. Did the Egyptian princess tell him he was a Hebrew, or did she keep this from him? What is so significant about an Egyptian taskmaster that just makes Moses snap? Because he was raised in Pharaoh's household. No doubt he has seen plenty of Egyptians abuse Hebrew slaves. What is it about this specific moment where Moses responds in violence? He says, enough is enough. What is it? And then he kills the Egyptian? Isn't Moses the one who brings down the Ten Commandments? And one of those Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not kill. So his very launch into ministry starts with a murder cover-up. Is this really what God desires? We're not told the answers to these questions. In the Jewish tradition, there is Torah which is the first five books of the Bible. That's the text. Then there is Midrash. Midrash fills in the gaps. The Torah is the letters. Midrash 
is the white spaces in between the letters. And they fill it in with fables, narratives, stories, insight, commentary. They try and fill in the gaps that were left within the Bible. In mid, on the Midrash, the Jewish Midrash commentary on this exact passage, the Midrash on Moses killing the Egyptian is this. There was a, an Egyptian slave master who was horrendous. He was brutal. He was mean. He was vile. And under the cover of night, he went into a Hebrew house and raped a, a Hebrew wife. The next day, he begins to beat the Hebrew husband, to the point of going to kill him. And then that's when Moses says, no, no. And he instead kills him. Now, is that, did that happen? I don't know. The Jewish rabbis teach us that that's, that's what led Moses to this action. There's so many questions. Now, the New Testament actually gives us some midrash as well on this exact passage. Now, it's not called midrash in, in uh, the Christian faith, but uh, in commenting on this passage, Hebrews tells us this in chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Interesting. We're told that in the New Testament, it was because of Christ that Moses intervened. And I, let's just put this in a, in a historical perspective. The Exodus was roughly 1500 BC. That's 1,500 years before Jesus even shows up on the scene. And Hebrews tells us it is because of Jesus that Moses identified with the oppressed. Uh, this is well before Moses has this burning bush experience. That's next week. It's going to be great. Uh, this is well before Moses becomes even a follower of Yahweh, a follower of God. He doesn't know the God of the Hebrews yet. So what? Moses left the treasures of Egypt for the sake of Jesus? Is this really what was going through his mind? Probably not. But when you serve and you act on behalf of the suffering and the oppressed of the world, you're doing it for Jesus whether you realize it or not. That's why we should affirm and encourage the justice brought about by people and organizations that are not Christians. We shouldn't say, well, you're not a Christian, so you're not a Christian organization, so we're not going to partner with you, we're not going to work with you. No, 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 no. They're actually doing the work of Jesus, whether they know it or not. What they're doing is for Jesus, just like Moses. Now, I'm not speaking into their eternal salvation um, to those who aren't Christians but do Christ's work on earth. I'm not speaking into that question at all. That's God's deal. He's the judge. But I am saying that Jesus is pure truth. Moses gave up Egyptian royalty to be mistreated with the oppressed. He chose to identify with the oppressed. He embraced disgrace. And he did it for the sake of Jesus, even though he didn't know it. And the next day, we discover that word's gotten out. This Hebrew whom he saved blabbed. He was, Moses was betrayed. And this is a foreshadowing to what's going to take place when Moses eventually leads the Hebrews out of Egypt. Uh, the people complain. They betray Verse 15 says this, when Pharaoh heard of this, 
he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. The jig is up. Gone are the tasty delicacies of Egypt and the palace from which he was raised. Gone is the comfy bed. Gone are the servants who waited on your every need. Gone. Never again for Moses. For 40 years, he lived a life of luxury as a prince of Egypt. Now he's sitting by a well in the desert of Midian. Now, the life of Moses can be broken down to three sections of 40. The first 40 years of his life, he lived in Egypt as a prince. The second 40 years of his life, he lived in Midian as a shepherd. And the last 40 years of his life is the let my people go. And he takes Israel out of Egypt into the desert. Now, he's, in this passage, he's entering the second season of life. He's rejected by Egypt, right? Pharaoh wanted to kill him. He's betrayed by the Hebrews. They don't like him. His, his own people don't like him. He represented oppression for 40 years. So you kill one Egyptian and you want us to cozy up to you? Hard pass. He was the face of the oppressor for four decades. Now he's alone. He's without a community. He's in Midian, wondering, who am I? Who am I? Am I Egyptian? Am I Hebrew? Even the name Moses is a combination of the Hebrew word to draw out and the Egyptian word to be born. Even his name lives in tension with this, am I Egyptian or am I Hebrew? We too have an internal struggle about our own identity. How do you think of yourself? When Viktor Sabriakov was 15 years old, his teacher told him that he'd never finish school, that he should drop out and learn a trade. So he did. He took the advice for the next 17 years. He did all kinds of itinerant, various odd jobs. He had been told he was a dunce, and for 17 years, he acted like one. When he was 32, an amazing transformation took place. An evaluation revealed that he was actually a genius with an IQ of 161. Guess what he started acting like? The genius he always was. And since that time, he wrote books, secured a number of patents, became a successful businessman, and became the chairman, the foreman of the Mensa Society, whose only requirement is to have an IQ of 140 or above. Proverbs says this, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I don't really read the King James very often, but that one just seems to fit, right? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. How we think about ourselves greatly matters. And the gospel is not an announcement of who you aren't, but who you are. The New Testament authors don't refer to us as uh, sinners, to the sinners in the church of Rome. No, what does it say? To the saints in the church of Rome. To the saints in the church in Corinth. To the saints in the church in Thessalonica. We're pulled from the future into it, not pushed from the past. It's not about our past. What you aren't or what you were isn't interesting. Who you are and who you're becoming that's what matters. Zerusa, who's an ancient mystic, is 
quoted as saying this, when I die, God is not going to say, why weren't you more like Moses? He'll say, why weren't you more like Zerusa? We don't need another Moses. We don't need another John. We don't need another Noe. We don't need another Brittany. Uh, we need you to be who God's called you to be with your giftings, with your call. God doesn't consult your past to determine your future. He doesn't look back and go, and that person really made a ton of mistakes. And so I'm not, I'm not going to be able to use him. I, I, I'm, my hands are tied. No, he doesn't consult the past. He, he, he calls us to go past the past. So here's Moses in the Midian desert alone, not knowing who he is. And I believe this is what God's saying to us this morning. You can call yourself that you're alone, or you can call yourself, I have the God in the universe. You can call yourself terrible sinner, or you can call yourself more than conquerors in Christ. You can call yourself unworthy of being called, or I'm going to make a difference for the kingdom of God. You can call yourself, I've got a bad past, or you can call yourself, I've got a bright future. You get a say-so. That's the duty of saints. We get to pursue the calling God has on our lives, and he doesn't consult the past. Leo Tolstoy, famous author, um, thought he was getting his marriage off on the right foot when he confessed to his fiancée all of his previous relationships. He actually let her read his diary as he was growing up. He wanted it to be honest and open, and I need to confess, here's all the stuff I've done. It had the reverse effect on his wife. Uh, Tolstoy's confession sowed seeds for a marriage that would be held together by vines of hatred, not love. Sonia Tolstoy, his wife, in her own diary said, when he kisses me, I'm always thinking, I'm not the first woman he has loved. Some of his adolescent flings she could forgive, but not his affair with this woman called Exenia, who was a peasant woman who continued to work on the Tolstoy estate. She said, one of these days I shall kill myself with jealousy after seeing Exenia walk by her one day. She says, if I could kill Leo Tolstoy and create a new person exactly the same as he is now, I would do so happily. Another diary entry from January 14th, 1909, she says this, he relishes that peasant wench with her strong female body and her sunburnt legs. She allures him just as powerfully now as she did all those years ago. When Sonia wrote those words, Exenia was 80 years old. So either this peasant woman had a rocking body, okay? <laughs> At 80, or a half century of jealousy and unforgiveness has blinded Sonia and in the process destroyed her love for her husband. The past is gone. We're a new creation. The past is the past. Live here, live for the future. Verse 15 says this. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, they came to draw water and fill troughs to water their father's flocks. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up, came to their rescue, and watered their flock. Midian, here's a map, is northwest Saudi Arabia. It's 285 miles from the Egyptian city of Ramesses, from which Moses is believed to have fled from. 285 miles. To flee such a distance is... 
tells us the scope of the Egyptian empire. Pharaoh had people everywhere looking for him. So he flees to the least place that they would find him in the middle of the Midian desert. No longer a lofty bystander observing the people's plight from the security of his privileged status, he now comes to experience firsthand the wrath of Pharaoh. He was on the other side of that for so long, and now he's scorned by Egypt. He's alone. But the conscience, Moses' conscience, or you could say his spirit that was inside of him, was still prevalent, even in the midst of this, this desert. The same spirit that moved him to act on behalf of the oppressed also moved him to rescue these seven daughters. Moses had been trained in the military school of Egypt, so he knew how to fight. So when these random people are trying to harass these women, trying to feed their flocks, Moses steps in and dominates, and they run. But his, his heart to intervene, his heart to bless, his heart to help those who were vulnerable is still there. And he didn't kill them. So maybe there's growth in Moses. Verse 18 says this, when the girls returned to rule, he's later called Jethro, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? The women answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. Interesting. They see him as an Egyptian, not a Hebrew. They knew of both, but Moses, whether it's the way he carried himself or somehow uh, his clothing is still very Egyptian. It says, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. He names his son Gershom, which means to send away to send away. What a sad name for your boy. I love you, son. Now go away. <laughs> but he named him because what, of, of what he himself was going through. His son's name is a constant reminder of the banishment he himself is experiencing from Egypt, from everything he's ever known. And Moses spends the next 40 years of his life in Midian. And during those 40 years, the past becomes the past. We can even say that the Lord's hand drives Moses out of his comfort zone and into the desert. Would Moses have been adequately, adequately prepared to lead the people of Israel to maybe perhaps author the first five books of the Bible? Is Moses prepared for the let my people go if we don't have the 40 years in the desert of Midian? It's a season of preparation, a season, a season of, of, of sharpening, a season of chiseling of pruning Moses. He slows down. He becomes a shepherd. He becomes a family man. He raises his family. It's a far cry from the life he had in the palace of Egypt. And it's a simple life. He seems to become centered here during his time in Midian. The questions of Egyptian or Hebrew identity kind of get pushed down to, in the life of this shepherd. And then next week, God really messes things up by appearing to him while he's shepherding his flock in this desert. He appears to him in a burning bush, but that's next week. Why does Moses kind of come home to himself in this time of, 
being a shepherd in the Midian desert? How does he come to this point of like, I'm not just a product of Egypt? Why does God come on the scene right after this? Could be the solitude that he experiences in the wilderness, different pace of life. I'm just going to shepherd the flock and take care of my family. John Orberg, an incredible, incredible pastor and writer, theologian. He's a pastor up at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in the Bay Area. And uh, he tells a story of meeting one of his great longtime influences in his life, Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard is a guy who's just uh, another famous Christian author who wrote some amazing books on the spiritual disciplines and the inward person, um, and just an uh, unbelievable saint for the kingdom. John Ortberg got one hour with Dallas Willard to ask him whatever he wanted. He was so excited. So he, he says, all right, all right, let me ask, I want to ask the big question first. I want to ask the big question first. Um, what is the one thing I need to do to follow Jesus better than I ever have, to make the biggest difference? And he's got his pen and his paper ready. And Dallas Willard says this, you ruthlessly rid your life of hurry. Ruthlessly rid your life of hurry. And John Orberg goes, oh, that's good. That is good. And he's writing it down. What's next? What's next? I'm ready. Rid your life of hurry. Got it. Next. And Dallas Willard says, that's it. They just stare at each other for 58 more minutes. There is nothing else. There is no number two. Ruthlessly rid your life of hurry. Is that us? It's not me, okay? It's not me. Slow down. Some of us need to slow down. I need to slow down. We don't get the Moses who stands before Pharaoh and demands, let my people go without the 40 years of slowing down in the desert of Midian. We don't get that Moses. We don't get the Moses who authors the first five books of the Bible. We don't get the Moses who parted the Red Sea. We don't get Moses who confronted the leader of the known world at the time without the 40 years in the wilderness. Some of you feel like you've been going through a wilderness season. Uh, it's tough. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. For 40 years, Moses lived a life of luxury in Egypt. 40 years in Midian as a husband, as a father, as a shepherd. 40 years of preparation. No one grows up overnight. So the Moses, who may have done the, the right thing in the wrong way by murdering the Egyptian slaveholder, gets softened, grows transforms, changes. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. You used to be quite a bit rough around the edges. Someone does something, you're ready to fight. You're not like that anymore. You've grown, you've softened, you've gotten a bigger heart. God does this in us over time. It often takes some wilderness experiences. It often, ta it often takes some desert time where it's hot, it's uncomfortable, that changes us, that shapes us and molds us in who we're called to be. 40 years in Egypt, living a life of luxury. 40 years as a shepherd, a father, a husband in Midian. 
Then he is called by God at the ripe age of 80 years old to deliver Israel. 80. 80 years old. Don't let age be a hindrance to you. Never say, I'm too young for this. I'm too old for this. Moses was 80. God has a specific call on your life right now at your age at this stage. Right now. Don't say, if I was younger or if I was a bit older, God has you in this specific season, in this specific time for a specific purpose. Will you respond? Joshua Slocum, in the 1860s and the 18, through the 1880s, he was a ship captain sailing ships that traveled all around the world shipping cargo. Uh, he was one of the best. He, he taught all of his kids uh, to be sailors. They were all born on ships. But then technology continued to grow in the industrial age. Steam engines surpassed the previous technology, and it left sailors like Joshua Slocum out of a job, out of work. And in 1892, he was given a ship, a small ship called the Spray. And it was, he was given to him on land because it was unfit for the sea. The owner gave him the ship because uh, he didn't know what to do with it. it. It's an antique, and it's broken. Joshua went out into the woods with an axe, cut down trees, and brought the trees back and made new planks, and built the boat fit for the sea. Then in 1895, he got in the boat in the harbor of Boston, and he alone sailed the world for the next three years, 46,000 miles. He figured how to rig the boat so he could sail at night, and he could sleep under, uh, under the deck. He was at one point attacked by a group of pirates, and as they approached his boat, he came up, showed himself, went down below deck, changed his clothes, went back up, showed himself again, went back down, changed his clothes, so that they would think that there's multiple people on board and it wasn't a one-man boat. This was the brilliance of Joshua Slocum. He would set up nails on his ship on, 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 while he slept below so that if anybody tried to board his boat while he was sleeping, they would be pierced. Pirates started to hear about this and would stay away from his boat. He at one point had a family of dolphins swimming behind him. And he had like a kinship with these dolphins. He's in this one-man boat. And at one point, uh, a shark approached and was trying to get one of the baby dolphins. Joshua Slocum then tied a skillet to a rope, threw it out there, made it go like it was a fish so we knew the shark would go towards it. And as the shark goes toward it, he holds the rope with his foot and pulls out a shotgun and shoots the shark that was going to eat the dolphin. This is Joshua Slocum. There are many stories about him in his memoirs. He tells the story of riding at a port in Africa. And as he's giving uh, a public lecture about how the earth is round, because that's how he got there. All the flat earthers were not very happy with that. And he had to escape death from these flat earth tribe that were trying to kill him. Amazing. When Joshua Slocum left the Boston Harbor in a boat that he fixed by chopping down trees in the woods. He was 51 years old. When you think about your life, do you think that when I'm 51, that's when the adventures are going to begin? I'll be 38 in a month. I can't... When I, when I stand up in the morning, it's like I'm eating Rice Krispies because it's snap, crackle, and pop, right? Right? <laughs> 
It's like, I'm only 38. Dude's cutting down trees at 51, building a boat, flying around, the, sailing around the world, shooting sharks with shotguns. Your life is a journey. I want to invite Noe and the band to come up. We'll close with a song. But Our journey is not filled with sharks, pirates, flat earthers. It's probably not our journey. But we do have some challenges, right? We have some questions about our own identity, about our own past. And God is saying to us in this very moment, let the past be the past. Jesus says that our sins are forgiven. The psalmist cries out that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. If you have a compass, if you go north far enough, you'll eventually go south. It's not true for east and west. If you go east, you'll always be going east. There is never a point when you will not be going east. So as far as the east is from the west, forever, eternal, that's how far all the mistakes you have made, all the failures, all the struggles, all the past, that's been removed from us. It's cast into the deepest sea, and God posts a sign and says, no fishing. They're gone. Let's move on. God has something bright for us at your age, at your stage. What is it? What is God calling you to? How is God calling you to respond to what we see in Exodus chapter 2 in the life of Moses? He made some mistakes. God used them. You've made some mistakes. I've made some mistakes. How will God use us in this season right here, right now? God, we thank you for the beautiful name of Jesus. We thank you, God, that you are good. We thank you, Jesus, for your hand in guiding and leading Moses, even as an infant, we thank you for the ways in which you proclaim that the past no longer has a hold over us. It doesn't have a say that we are more than conquerors in Christ. That we may feel like alone in a well in Midian. And God, you're next to us, drawing us closer to you. And so God, I pray for those in, in this place who are in a season of Wilderness, wanderings, desert, alone. God, I pray that you would lead them through this season and that to show them, God, the good at slowing down. That instead of checking that email, making that appointment, checking that calendar, making that phone call, we look into the eyes of our children and see the joy in their smile. It's more important than that email. And God, I'm preaching to myself now too. God, I pray in Jesus' name that, we, that our eyes are opened to what's right in front of us. And it wouldn't be our screens, and it wouldn't be our calendar, and it wouldn't be our 401k, and it wouldn't be our bank account, but it would be the people that you've placed in our lives that we can bless, that they might be feeling alone, and we might be that person who can come alongside of them and help them through this desert. Like Zipporah, Moses' wife, who plays a great role in the Exodus and a great role in reforming 
the old Moses to become the new. So God, use some Zipporahs in our own lives. We love you, Father. We praise you. We lift up your beautiful name in your name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close in this song?